This morning, our scripture is going to come from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. So would you please stand for me for the reading of the word? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them in practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and it beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Then Jesus finished saying these things. The crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Bless the name of the Lord. Last September, we began a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and today we come to the end of that sermon. Jesus doesn't uh, conclude his sermon like we're used to, or maybe even how we might prefer. There's no cute story. There's no uh, invitation to come forward for prayer. The disciples don't have a praise team that, that comes up and leads a response song when he's done. The sermon ends with a crash in silence. Jesus is done talking, drops the mic, walks down the mountain, and in the silence, the question hangs in the air then and now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this sermon, these teachings of Jesus? Because then and now, there are lots of possibilities. We could ignore Jesus' teachings. We could kind of act like he doesn't really expect us to do what he said, which is pretty common. Um... We could keep studying the sermon. We could listen to another sermon series on it. We could read some books. We could start a small group. Or we could do what Jesus says. And according to Jesus, there is really only one faithful response to this sermon, and that is to do it, to put into practice what Jesus says. And the way Jesus drives home this point at the end of the sermon is with a story. It's a parable about two guys who build houses. Now, I just want to warn you before we look at this story The more familiar you are with this story about the wise man and the foolish man, the harder it's going to be to hear what Jesus is saying. Why is that? Because there's a good chance as you listen to this passage, a very catchy, very memorable song is going to pop up in your head, right? You can probably hear it in your head now. Try to banish that song from your memory. Because Jesus isn't telling a kid song uh, he isn't, he's telling a story that ends in catastrophic structural failure. So let me, let me remind us, we are up on a mountain somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is only uh, 15 miles or so from his hometown, the town of Nazareth, which sits to the west. Nazareth is located in the hills and is full of rock-solid material on which to build a house. However, the the closer you move to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the more likely you are to find sandier ground. So we we typically think about Jesus as a carpenter, but scholars have pointed out that it's probably better to think about Jesus as a stonemason. There's not a lot of wood in this area of the world, so most of the construction that people have been doing was with stone. All right, so we got, you know, Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, but don't think about Uh, Jesus sitting in some kind of ivory tower just thinking all all day. Jesus was trained uh, as a craftsman. And as a craftsman, he would have known something about construction and what makes for solid foundations. He had learned this from hands-on experience, and he had learned it from his father. 
If Jesus were alive today, he would use the contractor entrance at Home Depot. So when I shifted from farming to working, where I was working with my hands uh, to pastoring full-time, I found it challenging to see my once calloused hands that had always, almost always had a combination of grease and dirt on them become much softer and cleaner. I think we can assume that Jesus carried the signs of manual labor on his hands as he preached. So it's probably not, as we think about it, a surprise that Jesus is going to end his great sermon by telling a story about two guys working on a construction project. So in Jesus' story, one guy builds the house on a solid foundation, on rock. The other builds it on sand. Rain comes down, streams form, winds blow. Both houses get hammered. One stands, one falls. The one that built this house on the rock That house stands, the one that built the house on the sand, that falls with a great crash. Guy who built his house on the rock, Jesus says that guy was smart, that guy knew what he was doing. Guy who built his house on the sand, that guy was a fool. Now just to be clear, Jesus is not giving a lesson in home construction in this parable. No one is stopping and writing on the back of their bulletin, note to self, don't build a house on sand. The people listening, they know you're not supposed to build a house on sand, which is Jesus' point. Don't be a fool. As Forrest Gump put it so well, stupid is as stupid does. Stupid builds a house on sand. Don't be a fool. And Jesus uses this really, it's extremely simple story. It's so simple that even preachers like have to work hard to uh, confuse people and make it hard to understand. It's an extremely simple story. And he ends it with this story after 15 minutes of preaching. That's probably what it would take if Jesus were to go straight through. Uh, We've been in it six months. The very simple lesson is you have two choices. A, you can hear Jesus' teachings and put them into practice. That's option A. That's the person like the wise man who has the solid foundation. Or B, Jesus says, you can choose not to put them into practice. This is the fool who builds a house on sand. You can hear the words and ignore them. You can pretend that you didn't hear them. You can uh, make them too complicated to understand. You can do anything except for actually do what Jesus says. And if I'm totally honest, I think this is the most common response to this sermon. So, don't, I've, like, I've listened to enough sermons in my life to know how sermons work, so I, don't, I won't be offended by this comment I'm going to make at all, but most of you are not sitting out there thinking, can we just get this sermon done so I can put it into practice? I am just itching to get doing what the preacher says to do, right? Let's be totally honest. Most of it just bounces off us. And if you do that with my sermon, you're probably going to be okay, Right? Listen to Kevin next week. But if you do that with my sermon, you're going to be okay. You do that with Jesus' sermon, let's be clear, the results are catastrophic. Last line in Jesus' sermon is, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew down and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This Greek word uh, for crash, uh, for great crash is megale, which is where, as you can probably tell, we get the word mega. So this house doesn't just fall with a crash, it falls with a mega crash. The end. Sermon's over. Drop the mic. Walk down the mountain. What a strange way to end a sermon. What a haunting way to end a sermon. 
But Jesus wants to do something here. He wants to stop us in our tracks. He wants to arrest our hearts. He wants to snap us out of the fog that, let's be honest, we're so often in and say, wake up. Do you realize how high the stakes are? You have this choice. You can put my words into practice or you can choose not to. We don't talk, especially probably in our congregation, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the fear of God. And there's probably some good reasons for that. If we constantly talk about the fear of God, we can have a warped understanding, a picture of who God is in our minds. God is a God of love. God is always moving towards us, reaching out in love. Let's get that clear. But let's also get, that, get clear that there's a healthy amount of fear when people are honest with us that we should have. There are times that we can be moved to action by fear in a way without that fear we can't. Think of someone uh, in your life, maybe this is even the path you're on, who's making really, really poor choices right now and is headed down a path that is going to end in disaster. Okay, there's times for empathy, there's times for listening, there's times for compassion, and there are times to say to that person, look, I love you, because I love you, you need to know that if you keep going down this path, it's going to end in disaster. Don't be a fool, Jesus says. There's too much stake. There's a storm coming. We, we have this language of storm in the Old Testament, and usually it's one of two things. One, it a, 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 a stands in for God's judgment, his final judgment. So what Jesus is, seems to be doing here is putting a final make-or-break choice in front of his listeners with eternal consequences. That's really, really sobering. It should wake us up. It should remind us the stakes are high. And I think it applies to life's difficulties. Right? Difficulties in life are going to happen. Storms are going to hit. Right? The question is not, will the storms hit? The question is, when the storms hit, will the foundation hold? What creates, according to Jesus, a strong foundation? Putting his teachings into practice. Building on the rock means doing what Jesus says, which means, wait for it, Jesus actually intends for us to do this stuff. And if we're going to do what Jesus teaches, we're going to, one, have to know what Jesus teaches. We've spent six months in this sermon. We're done today. I have a feeling you guys can't remember everything I preached these last six months. I, I can't remember everything I preached. So we better be going back on a regular basis to this sermon, which in our, as we, is our handbook. It's our training manual as disciples. You're going to need to immerse yourself in this sermon. You're going to need to study it. You're going to go back to it frequently. I would encourage you to memorize parts of it or all of it. Talk with others about it. This is your handbook for being a disciple of Jesus. If you are baptized, you are a disciple of Jesus. This is your handbook. Right now we're going, and if you follow our congregation's reading plan, we're going through the Old Testament. Uh, we're in Chronicles right now. We're in a gospel. I would include just add a few verses of the Sermon on the Mount so that you're constantly getting it held in front of you. In order to do what Jesus says, we're going to have to know what Jesus says. But even if we know this sermon, even if we memorize this whole sermon, we have a challenge. We live in the information age. You and I, more than ever, ever before with our smartphones and with our computers and our podcasts and our televisions, we are bombarded, we are inundated with information. We have more access right now than any humans in all of history have had access to, most of which we can do nothing about. Right? So earthquake happens in Turkey, as it did not long ago. Not much we can do. We can donate some money. A few people might be able to go over and help. 
most of it, we can't do anything. Even a train derailment in East Palestine. I've had a number of people call me up and say, what can we do? And the answer is nothing, really. You can't really do anything right now in East Palestine at this point. We are constantly taking in information that we really can't even do anything with. But here's the reality. Even when we can do something with that information, most of the time we don't. Right? How many times do you hear during a day something that, like, man, I should really put that into practice in my life? How often does that actually become a practice of yours? If you're anything like me, not very often, right? We have a challenge here. We, are, we, are, we were inundated with information, most of which we can't do anything about. Even when we can, we usually don't do anything about it. And think about this. Jesus is preaching this sermon. He's concerned about people who don't have access to books, smartphones, podcasts, social media, television, and he believes that they are at grave risk for hearing his teaching and doing nothing about it, right? You and I on our phones have more access to more information than these people would have had in a lifetime. You think if Jesus is worried about them that we don't need to be worried about ourselves at the risk we are with all the information we have? And yet, the expectations are the same. Then and now, Jesus expects his followers, when they hear this sermon, to put it into practice. Not just to hear it, to shape your life around it, to live it, to do it. Like, we've got to be really clear. Information does not equal faith. Let me say that again. Information does not equal faith. Oftentimes, if I ask you, what is your faith, you will tell me what you know. I know Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. Essential piece of information to be a disciple of Jesus. Not enough. Not enough. Uh, as Jesus' brother, James, will say in his own book, so memorably, you, you know stuff? You believe there's a God? Congratulations, that puts you in the company of demons. That's, that's what he says. See, I think if we're honest, I think sometimes we like Jesus more than his ideas. What do I mean? I don't think most of us here probably have too big a problem with Jesus. Jesus is great. Jesus' ideas for how we're to live, eh. We become what Dallas Willard memorably called vampire Christians. Jesus will take your blood, but you can keep your ideas about what it means to follow you. As Willard writes, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life, and I'll see you in heaven. Jesus, I understand you have your ideas on how to live, but I think what I'll take is a little bit of your blood. I'll go my path. How about we meet back in heaven? Of course, none of us are going to say we're going to take this, but we are very much in danger of doing what Dallas Willard calls vampire Christianity. And Jesus is crystal clear at the end of his sermon, it does not work that way. Jesus fully intends for us to hear his words and put them into practice. Does that mean we're going to do them perfectly? Absolutely not. We, if you are following Jesus, you will fail constantly. I don't think Jesus' big concern is that his disciples are going to fail. They are, and they will soon in the story. I think that's why right in the heart of his sermon, if you remember, he builds in this request for forgiveness, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We're going to have to constantly be going back to that. Because if we're following, if we're striving to follow after Jesus, we are going to fail. I think what Jesus is probably much more concerned is like a response of, 
Yeah, that's not for me. You seek after Jesus and you fail. Jesus, in my understanding of the Bible, doesn't have a problem with that. You hear Jesus teaching and you say, yeah, not for me. That's what Jesus has a problem with. Are we doing that? Are we shaping our lives around Jesus' teaching? Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, first of all, welcome. Second of all, if I were you, I would be saying, hold on. Why in the world should I shape my life around this guy's teachings? Right? Let's listen to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, do everything I say to do. Yeah, I know people in history who have said things like that. There are highly charismatic, intelligent, persuasive men who have told their followers to do whatever they tell them to do, and we call them psychopaths. Right? We call them cult leaders. Honestly, if anyone other than Jesus preached this sermon, we would call him or her a psychopath. Think about the words that Jesus says at the end of the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Imagine somebody, a preacher standing up and saying, at the end of time, at the judgment, you know who's going to be there? It's going to be me. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is wise. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not practice them is a fool. If I, like if I ever stand up here and there's no scripture read before I preach and I begin to use language of whoever hears these words of mine, just walk out. Just walk out. You don't want to be near me. Jesus is assuming a massive amount of authority here. If we really hear what Jesus is saying, if he can snap us out of us, our, our fog, we should be alarmed. Because Jesus in his 15-minute sermon has just laid out this thing that you have to shape your life around it, and if you don't, you're a fool. Which means following Jesus isn't a hobby. Following Jesus isn't something you do on Sunday morning. Following Jesus isn't something you add on to your life or do on the side. If you hear what Jesus says, your life will revolve around this man. Generally speaking, again, if anyone says this to you, you should hightail it out of there. But here's the major difference between most of the people who say this kind of thing in Jesus. Lots of people have said, like, if you don't do what I'm saying, you are a fool, right? And usually they have weapons and tanks and armies just to make sure you realize if you don't do what I'm saying, you're a fool, right? They're backed up with armies and tanks. Not Jesus. Jesus has no problem referring to himself as Lord, as the judge of all humanity, and he gives you, you and I total freedom to walk away. Jesus doesn't force anyone to do anything. What does he do after his sermon? Does Jesus say, now we're going to go into the desert and we're going to build a compound and you're going to live there? No. Drops the mic, walks down the mountain, gives you the choice. What are you going to do? You have the total freedom to decide if you follow Jesus or not. We need to hear that. We're not forced to follow Jesus. We have the right to say no to Jesus and take our own path. Jesus never forces us to follow him. Jesus, though, has this strange kind of authority. He, he makes these outrageous claims that most people would think you're a cult leader or a megalomaniac or a psychopath, and yet people are drawn to Jesus. His sermon ends with a crash. I think it's the ending we need. Because for too long, the way of Jesus in America, the vision put forth in the Sermon on the Mount has been watered down, it has been domesticated, it costs you nothing, and it looks more like the American dream than it does the way of Jesus. And it's not a compelling vision. 
It's not worth, the vision of American Christianity is not worth giving your life to. I was talking with a buddy of mine recently who served in the military. And if you know me and you know my position on peace, you will know we don't agree on everything in terms of the military. But we agreed on one thing. The military is one of the few places that ask you to give your life to something bigger than yourself. It's one of the few places that ask you to do something costly. It can cost you your life. So much different than Christianity in our country. I'll just speak for myself. If Christianity, if following Jesus looks like American Christianity, I don't want to give my life to that. It's not all bad. It's just not worth it. It's not a compelling vision. It sounds like a hobby. And if Christianity is a hobby, I'd rather be out fishing, I'd rather be out hiking, and I'd rather be out canoeing. It sounds like a social club. And if Christianity is a social club, I can get a lot better cup of coffee somewhere else than here. We're working on that. I would venture, and I don't mean this hyperbolically, I've got kids in sports, I would venture that the typical sports team in our country makes more demands on you and your time and your energy than the average church makes demands on you to follow Jesus. Folks, we got to face that. We got a problem. When a sports team asks more of you in terms of what your commitment is than we do as a church, we have a problem. And part of that problem is I don't want to give my life to that. I want to give my life to something bigger, to something with a compelling vision. I hope that after six months in this sermon, you realize that following Jesus is going to cost you. If you want to find an easier path, there are lots of easier paths than following Jesus. Let's just get that out right now. And Jesus wants to realize you have a choice. Notice how Jesus doesn't say you should, you should really practice these things. He doesn't say you must practice these things. What Jesus does is he says, all right, I'm going to tell you about two ways. This is one way. This is the other. This one ends in destruction. This one doesn't. This one's solid. It's your choice. It's, I think it's pretty sober for us. The crowds, interestingly, are amazed. Why are they amazed? Is it because of Jesus' charisma? Jesus was clearly a charismatic figure. Like He drew people to him. People wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to be close to him, but it doesn't say that. Was it because Jesus was a great teacher? He clearly was a great teacher, but it doesn't say that. What it says is that they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This word authority is really important. Have you ever had anybody try to like teach you something and while they're doing it, while they're teaching you something, you realize you don't really know what you're talking about, do you? You've never really done this thing, have you? And if you have, you've done it really poorly. You might be saying the right words, but you can't back that up with your competency and your skill. That's not Jesus. See, I think what's so amazing to these people is that there was a total integrity between what Jesus was saying and the life he lived. And it just blew people away. People are smart. Y'all are smart. You know when someone's all talk... You can see right through it. You can sniff it out. That's not Jesus. Jesus has his authority because he has this integrity in his life. He both teaches and he lives it. Anybody else who stands up and makes these claims like Jesus does, you'd say they're nuts. But Jesus is different. He walks the walk. He has an authority. He has an integrity like no one else. He has a vision like no one else. Why is this vision so compelling? Well, just imagine with me, in your minds, a vision of a community of people who do not abuse each other verbally and seek reconciliation over violence. 
Imagine a community without lust and where marriage vows are not violated. Imagine a community where people always tell the truth. Imagine when people do not retaliate with violence but love their enemies. Imagine a community that pray for those who persecute them. A community who is constantly giving to the needy and praying and fasting, but not to impress others, but because their Father in heaven sees it. Imagine a community that rather than amass more and more wealth, gladly shares their wealth with those around them. Imagine a community, imagine this America today, that's not just constantly worrying, but trusts in the goodness and the provision of a good heavenly Father. Imagine a community that, that rather than first looking at all the wrong with everybody else on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of politics, is looking first at themselves and their own brokenness. Imagine a community is marked by their deepest desire is to seek first the kingdom of God. It would be a strange community. It would be a community that marched to a different drum, and it would be a beautiful community. It would be a community worth joining and worth giving your life to because at its center would be Jesus Christ. We've got to get this right. We cannot arrive at the end of the sermon and say, okay, I've got to follow these rules. Okay, Jesus laid out an ethical vision for the world. Okay, that's Jesus' philosophy. No, the ultimate question that you and I must face is Jesus asking us, do you want me? Do you want to be all in? Do you want to build your life around me? Because ultimately Jesus is saying, and he's saying it in love, if you choose to build your life around anything else, it's going to end up in disaster. Jesus is the only one who will give his life to you out of love. Your job's not going to do that. Your hobby's not going to do that. Your stuff's not going to do that. No one else will give their life for you except for Jesus. And no one else in history can back up their claims by being raised from the dead like Jesus. To put your trust to center your life on anything else but Jesus is just a fool's errand. And the question hangs in the air for us now as it did then, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What I want to do here is just read the ending of the sermon one more time. If the praise team can just give us about one minute, I want to just hear Jesus' words as he ends his sermon and just sit with that and ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to do? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash.